Welcome to the Unstoppable Recording Machine Podcast, brought to you by Line 6. Line 6 is a musical instruments manufacturing company that specializes in guitar amp and effects modeling and makes guitars, amps, effects pedals, and multi-effects. We introduce the world's first digital modeling amp, and we're behind the groundbreaking pod, Multi-Effect, which revolutionized the industry with an easy way to record guitar with great tone. Line 6 will always take dramatic leaps so you can read new heights with your music. And now your hosts, Joey Sturges, Joel Wanasek, and Eyal Levy. Hey everyone, welcome to the Joey Sturges Forum Podcast. How's everyone doing today? You got me sick, dude. I know, I'm sorry. Did it's, you guys okay. just nail the mix yesterday? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it went really well. We talk all over each other. We're in the same house. We're both sick. It's we may as well be like eating from the same plate and uh going to the bathroom together because we're talk, <laughs> talking all over each other and uh, yeah, this is what happens. Yes, we nailed the mix yesterday and uh, Joey, thanks for uh, being a trooper because I know you were feeling like death and you stuck it out through that whole thing like a, like a champ. Yeah, well, it's important to me. I really believe in the program. I think that uh, it's a one of a kind and it it's awesome. So I'm I'm there till the end. Yeah, it's I, I you I didn't notice you were sick. Like I mean, I know you're sick, but you didn't you weren't acting like it. So that's cool. I'm just kind of saying this because it's uh it takes a lot of energy to uh, talk to the camera for that many hours straight. So uh, anyway, kudos. How are you doing, Matt? Oh, I'm doing great. Matt Brown is here. He's our uh, special guest. Matt, I guess I'll introduce him because I've worked with him the most. It, Matt Brown is uh, one of my favorites out of all the people I've met so far in this music world. One of the good guys. <laughs> um, yeah, there aren't that many good guys, so when I say Matt's one of the good guys, I mean it. I've met him as the capacity of him being a drum tech for me in Florida on various albums and out of all the drum techs I've worked with he was the best so I would always hire him and the drums just always sounded better and then I realized that uh, he's also a killer engineer so I've learned a lot of engineering tricks from him and it's really nice to have a drum tech who I can ask engineering questions to or who can give suggestions because you know it's not just about how the drum is tuned and it's also about how you're capturing it so it's good to be working with someone who understands that then it turns out that he He's also a killer drummer and has had a professional career as a drummer and has his own studio. So kind of living the dream <laughs> and would be a just a, got a lot to say. So we're happy to have you on. Oh, thanks for having me, guys. Absolutely. Cool. Well, episode done. Thanks <laughs> yeah. for coming up. <laughs> thanks for the introduction. That was great. Yeah, cool. <laughs> well, we've also hired Matt uh, for Drumforge and um, man, he is quite the tech. So... Time to pick your brain, yeah? Okay. Yeah. <laughs> so, uh, why do you do this? <laughs> uh, well, <laughs> no, no, what, what, no, no, no. Actually, in all seriousness, because I know that you're a drummer. Yeah. Like a, and an excellent drummer at that. How did teching come about? Because I know that, you know, sometimes musicians aren't, don't see that as a possibility. Yeah, I, I guess it all starts with, I mean, my history with drumming and in general, but not only drumming and but drumming and studio work and engineering, it all comes from my family. My father and my mother are both musicians or were musicians. 
my dad uh, had a career when I was born. He was a touring drummer uh, with a Christian folk band, and uh, so. I kind of grew up around, you know, him playing in his band. We went on the road as a family quite a bit, and um, I started playing drums when I was three, and you know, was sitting in with his band when I, by the time I was five, and uh, you know, just kind of doing what little kids do, and parents showing off their kids when they can, kind of a thing. And uh, but it stuck with me, and I really enjoyed it. And uh, then when he kind of, they kind of called it quits for touring. He had set up a, a studio in the garage. This is in Jacksonville, Florida. So I remember being a kid and like I had my own drum set in the living room, but he also had his set up in the garage where his big drum set was. And I used to go out there and play to records and it was awesome. And, um, you know, so I kind of just always played drums because they were always around and, you know, I wanted to be like my dad. And so uh, I did that and I did the normal, you know, uh, middle school band thing and and high school band and marching band and and all that stuff and I was just consumed by everything drums and um the and then when I was in high school or shortly after that shortly before that I mean um my dad when we moved down to Orlando he took a job with Heartland Records which was the Christian record label associated with Full Sail at the time back in the in the 80s and um he was one of the A&R guys for for Heartland Records so as a little kid I was running around the beginning of Full Sail which was um with uh, Gary Platt and Gary Jones oh, that and, that explains a lot yeah so I was running okay. around the studios and the classrooms and you know as like a, a kid like six seven eight years old um you know, hanging out in that environment of like, okay, there's recording studios everywhere, everybody's a musician, that whole type of thing. So nobody ever told you that this is unrealistic. You just grew up on it. So probably, and I share this because my dad, being the conductor, I grew up around him and, you know, all the guest soloists are like the best in the world and just always traveling to concerts. And it didn't even dawn on me that, a music career is unrealistic for most people. I just, yeah, yeah, it's how I grew up. It just made sense. I bet it's exact same thing for you. Oh yeah, totally. My, you know, my and my dad and my mom both were nothing but supportive of of music. Um, my mom is is the is an angel because I had my dad's drum set set up in our new house down when we moved to Orlando. I set it up in the garage and I would play it every night and literally one drywall wall separated the garage from the kitchen. And so I would be playing drums as loud as I can and, you know, the rule was I just had to stop when dinner was ready and I couldn't play it anymore after that. So she would put up through me playing whatever uh, I was into at the time, you know, which ranged from, you know, Huey Lewis and the News to Yes to Rush to whatever drumming stuff I was inspired by, a lot of Toto as well. But, you know, playing that kind of stuff and all she could hear was the drums coming through the wall while she was making dinner, like every night. So they, you know, my parents were nothing but supportive. Um, and then, you know, to kind of fast forward through the story, like my dad ended up becoming... Uh, the house engineer for Harcourt, Harcourt Brace Jovanovich, which was the uh, publishing company that owned, used to own SeaWorld and a uh, huge like uh, corporate uh, book publishers, and uh, and of course they always had the the accompanying book on tapes to go with those language programs or the math programs or whatever. So he was the house engineer for them 
when they downsized the company and laid him off, he opened his own studio. So this is right at around the time that I was like 14, just started high school. He opened his own studio. He happened to take all of the work that he was doing at uh, Harcourt Brace, as well as was now able to work for other corporate people doing these book on tapes and doing, uh, you know, Foley work for films and whatever, plus a little bit of music here and there. So I started working for him when I was 15. So let me get one thing straight, though. Yeah. Was he like a trained engineer or was he a musician who fell into engineering? He was a musician who who went to started school for electrical engineering and decided that he wanted to learn how to record. And so in the 70s, he started reading and everything he could find on recording. And, you know, of course, his band had been in several studios. So... You know, he had kind of learned from from the environment that he was in, but also he's, okay. he's one of those guys that he's very, very intelligent, and he learned a lot from reading on on his own and then experimenting and experimenting. And he's, I mean, honestly, he's one of the best engineers I've ever met, ever. And I'm not just saying that because he's my dad. I'm saying that because he gets some amazing sounds out of his studio. So I started working for him when I was uh, 15. I edited tape. I edited dialogue on tape for six months, and then uh, he was one of the first people to, and at least in Florida, to invest in this new thing uh, called digital audio, which was Pro Tools version one, which was known as Sound Designer um, in 1991. He, wow. he put up the um, thousands and thousands of dollars to buy one of the first rigs in Florida. How much was it back then? Because I know that even now, if you get like the full-scale Pro Tools HDX, you're spending in the five figures. But yeah. what was it What was it back then? I believe, I believe it was because you, I mean, you had to buy a Mac 2 FX computer, which was like 3500 bucks to begin with. Well, they've always been expensive. Yeah. And then, and then the Pro Tools stuff, the interface, and I believe that was another thirty grand, and then the hard Jeez, wow, <laughs> I almost spit out my drink. Yeah, well, the crazy part is the hard drives, like giant, you know, two space rack mount hard drives, hundred and twenty eight megabytes, <laughs> which was <laughs> massive for the time, and those would run two grand a piece. So, you know, when you're running dialogue and those big books and stuff that he was, uh, those programs that he was um, recording and editing, you know, he had, we had probably, at one point we had three computers up and running with Pro Tools HD on them, or the old HD, and then we had these giant rack space, like probably 12 space racks filled with hard drives in three different rooms. So does it blow his mind where it's at now, where like a terabyte is nothing and people can just record on a Mac mini oh, I'm, even. I'm sure, I mean, sure. I'm sure he is blown away by all of it. Cause we, I mean, he still has all that stuff. We have it at, at one of his studios. He's got it all stored and it's kind of there on display, like the history of Macintosh computers <laughs> plus, you know, the history of hard drives, you know, it's, it's pretty crazy, but and I, but, Pro Tools. yeah. And Pro Tools as well. Yeah. He's got all the, all the gear, all the ones he didn't trade in at least. So, yeah. So that kind of brings me to where, you know, I was learning how to really play drums being in high school and being exposed to players that were better than me. But I was also learning how to edit dialogue and record and engineer um, on this brand new thing called Pro Tools all at the same time. So like the most influential years of 
what I would consider most players, you know, if they start young, you know, usually the teenage years are the are the part where is a time where you go crazy, learn how to play as fast as you can and as many notes as you can and Yes. You know, I'm crazy about this and I'm going to learn how to be as fast and as best as I can be. Well, that happened at the same time that I was learning engineering side of things as well. So it was kind of like, well, if I'm going to learn how to play, I might as well learn how do I make things sound good as well. And that's when I dove into the drum tech side of things and and I just started dissecting the drums. Like I'm one of those people that it's in my nature to when I get something, I, the first thing I do is take it apart and see how it works and then try to put it back together, you know? <laughs> like, So that's what I did. With I started doing that with drums, and I realized, oh, this drum has a different type of bearing edge than another drum does, and, and these are different types of wood and you know why do they why do they sound different or you know what this is a different depth and a different diameter like all these different things happen to these different drums like how do I get them to sound the best for what they're doing and of course that opened the door to drum heads and everything else involved with making a a drum sound the way it sounds you know so so it was just an uh, an extension of your passion for yeah. Playing, playing and learning music. It wasn't like a, a chore because no. the, the reason I'm saying that though is because like for me, setting up a guitar is a chore. Right. Uh, and I know a lot of, I know a lot of people like that and that doesn't make them a better or worse musician. I just know some people would rather just not deal with that kind of thing. The kind of person who doesn't take things apart and then put them back together, you know? Yeah. It's a, it's a personality trait and not everyone has it. So that's why well, I was just kind of curious where that came from because I think that to get really, really good at something like that, you have to be passionate about it or you'll be so bored that you'll quit. Yeah, well, I always viewed it as like, I didn't really think about teching for other people until I started working for you and, and the other guys here in town, which is... Really? Yeah, yeah, because, well, because before that, people just hired me to play on the record. And part of hiring me to play on their record was me bringing my drums that sounded better than anybody else's. You know, so the figuring out how to tune drums and choose the right heads and get the sound that somebody wanted was part of one you know identifying myself and giving myself my own sound but two when in an age where you know like before editing got super popular with drums it was either you could play the part or you couldn't and you know i spent most of my 20s actually almost all of my 20s where most guys would be out on the road um, with playing with bands and being t- and touring and kind of getting better that way, I was the guy that played on everybody's records. Instead, I was hired. I was like the first call studio drummer for anything rock and pop and country in town, um, and worked with a lot of great producers in town. So I spent my twenties playing as a studio drummer, not getting credit on records, and basically the guy behind the closed doors, you know not really supposed to talk about who I'm playing with, but I'm playing on this record today type of a thing. And part of the reason I got picked for that wasn't just my ability to play to a click and be creative, but also my drums sounded better than anybody else's. And that was probably the first reason that most people called me is his drums sound great. You know, you know something that's interesting, whenever you do a drum session, 
with me whenever I do a drum session period mm-hmm. I always take samples of the kit I think lots of people do that it's just a really commonplace thing to do but just you know for everyone listening when I'm doing a record with Matt which is nine out of ten uh, when it comes time to take the kit samples I'll actually have Matt hit the drums on the kit rather than the drummer in the band because it just sounds so much better. It's unbelievable how much better it sounds. I'll back that up because, I mean, I've recorded enough drum samples in my life that I can't think of a better example of where the, you know, we talk about the player mattering all the time, you know, guitar playing, etc. It's amazing how five different drummers can hit a drum and do a drum sample. Like I've literally had, for example, the guitar player walk in and hit the drum better than the actual drummer I was recording with the band that day on the kit. And it just, the way they attack it, the way they hit it with the stick, it just sounds better. Yeah, it's, yeah. it's definitely in the hands for sure. Yeah, so I mean, I guess you put all that together, the right hands with the right tuning mm-hmm. and all that in a high pressure situation. And of course, you're going to get called back. Right. And I can actually play to a click, so that was yeah. like, oh, he's I can he can play to a click, so that's good too. <laughs> that's amazing. <laughs> you know how many drummers like? Oh. I actually had no idea about that part of your career. Yeah, I, I mean, I spent, like I said, I spent my twenties in the studio a lot, and the other thing that I was doing during that time was uh, playing at Disney World. And uh, when you play to the shows out at Disney World, all the shows are on click because of the you know the vo- the character voices and so i ha- i was playing with guys you know i'm here there i am at the magic kingdom playing in front of the castle with guys that are my dad's age and guys that had are legends like uh, g- there's horn players that played with Phil Collins and Buddy Rich you know uh, section player the rhythm section guys like the bass players that had toured with you know countless like big bands and like just legends on the on a whole nother level in a different era than I than I was a part of and I was playing drums on this show with them because I knew how to play to a click and with and I learned how at Disney to not just play with a click but how to play around a click because the Disney shows were half of them were done as a pre-programmed okay this is an actual metronome click and then the other half was the band went into the studio recorded the tune without a click and then they took the band out for the live shows and somebody added a click in by hand so you had to uh, you know learn how to average a tempo between you know the the first four clicks of the measure of the first measure, and then look at a longer phrase and how the vocals line up with that phrase, and kind of move around with this beak 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 going in your ear the whole time. So it it really kind of helped develop this ability for me to play exactly on a click, push ahead of the click, pull behind a click, push single limbs in front and behind a click, just to make things feel a certain way and. Um, you know that's that was a big part of the reason I was getting called to do studio sessions as well. You know, is they could put a click up and it wouldn't feel like a robot. So can I just say that I feel like as a producer, one of the biggest and most overlooked skills that I've seen drummers absolutely fail at is being able to play to a metronome. Like I've watched guys who will blow your mind when they play and then they walk into the studio all cocky, they sit down and they record the song for eight hours and they still even can't even get through the verse. And it's happened to me so many times and it's almost to the point where I used to have it as part of my, you know, like you'd hire a tracking engineer, you give them a mix sheet. I'd always send it in the email, like make sure your drummer learns how to play to a click or I'm going to send them home or call somebody in who can. Yeah. I feel like there's three stages to it, just to take what you just said a step further. Okay, so there's that stage where they don't know 
how and they're scared of it. And that just sucks. But then there's the stage where they kind of know how. They're still kind of scared of it. And the best you can hope for is right on the click or, you know, right on the click until they hit a fill where they rush it and then they catch back up. And then there's the third stage, which is the best stage where the drummer is so comfortable with the click that he can push and pull depending on what the feel of the music needs and he can make music around the click and you don't even really hear it. It's like it almost disappears into the drums because the drums are giving so much pocket. Uh, That's rare though that's very very rare yeah that's i almost feel like every drum set ever made should come with a little metronome or a click track (laughs) ipod thing or something so every drummer from day one learns how to play to a click because it's just such an invaluable skill dude i gotta say though when i started recording a lot there were many fewer people at least in heavy music who play to a click when i started recording drummers playing to a click that was like almost unheard of. Only very, very few guys who would come in would have done that. They were always like the super serious ones, obviously, or guys who had come up through band or something like that. But nowadays, it's a lot more commonplace. I mean, 10, 15 years ago, at least in this style of music, it was really rare to find a drummer who would even consider it. Like they were deathly terrified of it. Well, I don't think so anymore, but there was this weird misconception that playing to a metronome would kill your style or your feel or something. Yeah, I could see that. Well, I mean, the biggest difference I've noticed is we're, uh, you know, I'm a little bit older than you guys and kind of a little bit in that weird area between generations as far as, you know, how technology has, has affected music and specifically how technology has affected the players. We're in a place right now where a lot of the younger players, and by younger I mean in their mid-20s and, and you know younger, are playing to records that are perfectly quantized when they learn how to play music. So as a drummer, you're not really developing a sense of feel by playing to records. Like, I grew up, and my dad, when he, you know, even my dad was a drummer, but he never taught me how to play drums. He just showed me how to work the record player, and he gave me three records to play. And, you know, this is going to show my age, but those records were uh, Elton John, Yellow Brick Road, the first ABBA record, and the Beatles' White Album. And all great records. all, All great records, and they're all great on their own right, but the, I mean, those weren't done to click. You know, none of those records were done to click. So as a drummer, as a young kid learning how to play to that, I developed the sense of push and pull that is natural with those records. Now, you fast forward to the past probably, you know, I would say probably almost 15, maybe even 20 years now we're going on where everything has been tracked to a click and not only tracked to a click, but heavily edited to be almost exactly, if not exactly in time, very close. And you have generation of players that have grown up playing to music like that, developing their sense of timing on a whole nother level that, you know, I could never do. I mean, I could, but it would take me a lot longer because I'd have to unlearn a lot of the things that I've done to make myself sound like I sound, you know? And uh, like a a great example is uh, Alex Rudinger, like that kid's a machine. And he's oh, yeah. and he you don't need to edit him and you don't need to quantize him because he's perfectly quantized and I think a a part of that reason would be the fact that he grew up playing to records that were already edited and quantized to begin with and I'm seeing it not only in drums I'm seeing it in guitar players and um, you know 
even singers are starting to sound like they're automatically auto-tuning themselves as well. It's really weird. You know what's interesting about uh, drummers like Alex? I've known a few guys like him that are machine-like. I mean, really, really crazy good. And one of the first ones I ever met, uh, he told me that he got to that level because he didn't realize that there was a such thing as editing. He right. just figured he just figured that that's how his heroes could actually play. Like when they sat down to play, that that's what came out. So he forced himself to get that good. And uh, how disappointing must that have been when he found out that that wasn't the case? <laughs> well, oh. uh, he's, he's got a he's got a career now because he can actually do it. I right. think it's the same thing with Alex. I mean, you know, from working with Alex, and I know from working with Alex that as soon as uh, you hit stop on a take. He goes over to the practice pad and keeps playing. Yeah. Uh, like it's working, uh, doing a session to Alex Rudinger means that you're going to be hearing something being hit with a drumstick all day long. So he has his drum set, the one you're recording, and then a practice, uh, practice pedals with a practice, uh, like snare pad. And, uh, literally he will wake up in the morning and start playing on that thing for maybe an hour and a half, two hours, then you'll track. And uh, then if you need to take a break, if he like, maybe we'll get a drink or something and then he'll be right back there for, you know, however long the break is, he's still there yep. uh, practicing his double bass and his blast beats. It's, it's insane. It's almost like an Olympic athlete. Yeah. It's, I think. it's crazy. That's insane. He's, he's insane. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, that's what it takes to be able to keep it up at that level, I think. Yeah, for sure. So, like, I'm actually a little bit uh, surprised that you started teching because of us and stuff. Like, I, I'm actually surprised that you weren't doing that before. Well, I mean, I'd always teched on my own recordings. And even if I wasn't playing, like if I was producing band or recording uh, whoever and there was drums, I would always tech on that stuff. But honestly, it came down to the fact that, you know, I I was on the road for a good five year stretch between two different bands. And, you know, when you're on the road, most of the year, people just forget that you're home and they, you know, well, he's not, he's on the road, obviously. And they just think that. And uh, so it took me a while once I got off the, once I stopped touring in 2012 to really kind of, kind of put my name back out there in town. Like, Hey, I'm home. And I'm not only am I available to play, I'm available for session work as a drummer. I'm available. I have a studio um, and I can also drum tech. So how is it different? Uh, like, I mean, it might seem obvious to me and you, but I, I'm actually curious, like how different you have to, how differently you have to approach it, like when you're working with somebody else versus doing it for yourself. Oh well, I, when you're working for somebody else, I, you know, it's when I the first thing I try to do when I'm working for anybody is have them send me examples of the sounds that they like or give me an idea of what they're going for by playing me a a finished recording of a master preferably well yeah when we work together i'll always do that with him we'll pull up like the latest gojira mix or something that jay rustin did or or what the band says that they want it to sound like but we always will have a meeting um just me and matt in the room for like 10 15 minutes and go through some records and be like we kind of want a combination of like the size of this but with the punch of that and blah 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 yeah and, so, yeah and that for me is useful because for one, I know 
not only what drums are going to pick be picked to help get those sounds to begin with, but from an engineering side of things, I've dissected so many records, so I know what goes into making the drum sound the way it does. You know, including the 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 room mics and the the ta- the mics close mics and what choices you have, and you know, even down to I can tell most of the time like what type of stick the guy was using, and. You know, it's like those type of... I've dissected what makes a drum sound the way it does under a microphone so much it being on the engineering side of things as well. So it's very helpful for me to hear what the producer has in mind when we go into a project together. It's always good, I think, to uh, have a vision for what you're going to uh, going to be going for because otherwise you can just get into an endless loop of, is this good? Is it not? Is it good? Right. Is it not? Yeah, and I, and I feel like on my own side like me when i produce stuff i have a finished product in my head already before a single thing has been recorded and i have an idea of okay if i want it to sound like this at the end then i obviously need this type of drum sound i need this type of bass tone i need this type of guitar thing and the singer i want to have kind of this thing you know so i i can when i'm producing when i'm producing a project or you know, have control of something like that. I already know what it's going to sound like from the time they've played me the demo song. I hear it and I go, okay, here's what I want to do arrangement wise. Here's what I want to do with the sounds. And I just go and I follow my, my instinct. But when I'm working for somebody else, I'm not in their head. I need information. I need them to tell me what they want. So the easiest way to do that is just to give, get audio examples. Here's what I want to hear. And then that allows me to kind of look at what's available in the studio, um, wherever we might be, uh, not only with drums, but also with heads and microphones and kind of go, okay, if you want that sound, I know it's going to be these drums tuned with this way, with these heads, and it's probably these mics, but we can mess around with the mics once we get the, the drums up. But I know that at least ballpark wise, we're this area and I'll have, you know, two snare drums that are definitely going to be those, the culprits, you know, and, and a tuning range for the toms uh, that fits within that style, depending on how much attack and tone or that there are and things like that. So, the di- you know, that's the main difference between when I do things myself versus working with another producer. So that might sound really, really scary to some of the people listening because they might just have one kit and a shitty room and a small, you know, budget microphones like the Shure drum microphone kit right. or something. So how would you approach that? Like say that I hired Matt Brown and Matt Brown shows up and uh, all I have is this trashed out kit and like five microphones and stuff. What would you do? And also what would you recommend for people who are in more of a situation like that uh, who are trying to get better? Because let's face it, some of the situations me and you work in are unrealistic for a lot of the people listening. Oh yeah, I'm completely aware of that I have 25 snare drums at my studio here. <laughs> <laughs> you know, so only I, come on. So disappointing. Well, I mean, that's <laughs> all I have available right now. Uh, but um, yeah, I realize that that's not the case, and most people only have one of anything really. Um, it all depends. To me, I've also rec- I've recorded a lot of great things in really crappy situations. As far as the gear sounds like crap, the room sounds like crap, and the, and these are cheap mics and whatever, and no preamps, like just using a Mackie console and 
I've recorded some stuff that sounds great by tackling it from the idea of embracing what you do have, like looking at the strengths of what do you have that is in your favor. Uh, so, so if your room has a, a, a massive low end buildup, use it to your advantage by tuning the drums to where they don't have a lot of low end to begin with. And that way the room kind of balances out the kit itself by the amount of low end the, the room has in it. Or vice versa, if the room isn't very bright and you need more more brightness to it, so we'll tune the drums to, to get to or choose the heads that would give you more slap and more attack and less round, less fat. You know, like approach it from the idea of, uh, of, a, uh, of a scale. You know, like if you have... The, the benefits are I have this pretty cool sound and snare drum in this room. It sounds great. I don't really need to change it, and it, I like the way it sounds. And I noticed that the room has this nice blossom on the low end for the snare drum. But when you take that snare drum out of the room, you realize, okay, this is very thin sounding everywhere else. Well, that would tell you that your room has a low end buildup. So how do you make the rest of the drums sound the best in that room you just kind of kind of go with the idea of like okay just as additive or subtractive eq you wouldn't want to boost things that already had a lot of low end you'd probably want to shave some of that stuff off to make it sit better in the mix same type of thing with tracking like go from the point of what are the strongest things of this kit that i have well it has a lot of attack perfect okay let's get some heads that help accentuate those good qualities and if it's really, really bad and there's nothing you can do to, to get it to sound better, at that's the point where you go invest in maybe some triggers and use a an idea of getting a balance and in, in using room mics, like setting up a pair of room mics that can capture a somewhat of a room sound, even though it might not be the room sound you're using, but something to glue the whole kit together. And then slap some triggers on there and just record the clicks, go back, replace the sounds. And then that room mic that you've captured, maybe just squash it and turn it into something interesting to layer in with those trigger sounds. And and that way it kind of sounds somewhat natural, you know, and uh, not completely and uh, altered <laughs> and you know, fake. And I, I, I got to say, too, that, you know, how you're talking about low-end resonance build up in a room, you know, that's not just something that happens in small, crappy rooms. It happens like, in every room. Like, yeah, for instance, Matt and I were just in L.A. filming for the upcoming Creative Live that we did with Monuments, and the it's a very expensive studio we were in, but that drum room that had that 300 build up, remember, in oh, everything. Yeah. It was in every single microphone, no matter everything. It just 300 was just building up, and we had to compensate for that across the board. Yeah, and it, I mean, that was one of those situations where, you know, we chose, in particular, the bass drum heads. Without even knowing, I had chosen the, the head that would be best for the job on the kick drum. You know, I just... We were kind of going with the idea of like, well, we want to get something a little bit more attack out of the kick drum. So I went with a, a clear pinstripe, which is a very old school choice for drum heads. Like if you listen to Toto 4 with uh, Rosanna and Africa on there, that's a recording custom with a clear pinstripe bass drum head on it. And it and it has a lot of punch and a lot of attack. And the, the low end is hyped. It's not necessarily 
there on its own. It's definitely EQ'd into the mic. And so the idea was like, okay, let's get a little bit more slap out of this drum to begin with. So you don't have to boost the highs and cause even more bleed and phasing problems with whatever's coming into that microphone. And it just so happened to be the right head choice for that room, just just out of luck, really. <laughs> yeah, it it was it was a crazy amount of buildup. Yeah, but you know, every room is going to have its quirks. So I I say that so that people realize that what Matt's saying is probably the best advice you can get. Work to the strengths because uh, once you get into that mindset, you you take that mindset with you everywhere you go because no matter what you. Even in big studios, you're going to be solving problems. It's not like you one day get to a big studio and everything's perfect. It's definitely not like that at all. Yeah. This here's a question that comes up pretty frequently since we're on the topic of uh, less than ideal scenarios. Lots of people ask, how do they go about, uh, you know, getting usable room sounds or simulating them. I, one trick that I would do is I would sometimes at my old place, not the Florida place, the one I used to have in Atlanta, I uh, had a really bad drum room, but the hallway next to it sounded really cool, like for room. So I would mic up the wall and uh, that would give me a good mono room sound. Somehow it worked. And I just learned to be creative, but what would you do? I mean, the the hallway trick has been done in almost every studio I've worked at. Really, I mean, it's awesome. It, when I was when I was doing session work, it was not uncommon for people to prop open the door to the tracking room and put a mic in Omni or an MS configuration in the hallway outside. I, I mean, if you can do that and you don't have bleed from the control room coming in, then. I mean, you can create some really cool sounds by miking in other places than the actual room that the drums are in. If your room is super small and dead, which I've also done work in and, you know, I've had to had to make recordings that way, you know, and make them sound bigger that way. What I would do is set up uh, a set of overheads, but not in a spaced pair. I would set them up in an either an XY or a bloom line configuration, which is similar to XY. And um, basically, that second set of overheads, you know, you compress them to the point where they're not crunching out, but compress them. And then instead of, you know, adding samples of a room or whatever, go to a nice reverb or, a, you know, a room sound on a reverb and start dialing in a mix of that verb, like tailor the verb to the length of the room you want, and then start mixing that in directly on that channel as opposed to using as a descend. Make it a direct plug-in of the room reverb on that channel of that stereo room and start dialing it in until you find that point where it's like, okay, it, I'm not getting too much cymbals now. It's kind of calmed down and I'm getting the impact of the drums in the room themselves via a reverb you know and you could be you could get away with some magic that way without even really trying you know i want to harp on something you just said because uh joey um is a huge advocate of using inserts i don't joe you don't use any sense right i th always have thought that it shouldn't be an argument like people argue sends versus inserts sends versus inserts it's just one another one of those dumb arguments i've always said just use what works best so it's cool to hear you uh coming from you know a legitimate engineering background putting a reverb on an insert yeah well i mean it there's nothing wrong with it as long as that's the only instrument you want to use that reverb on you know i mean 
I like to think yeah. of the insert the inserts as this is the individual channel sound that I want and the sends are going to be well I'm going to send multiple instruments to this whatever it is and to get you know that kind of glue that happens when you send multiple things to ascend you know yeah absolutely Definitely. so uh, what about if there's just no nothing usable in the room at that point would you just try to get a fake room on there like literally nothing yeah i and i've done sessions like that i just mixed an ep for a local band like a jam band in town and and they're like we need we need this demo mixed and they tracked it themselves and the the root sounds were were pretty horrible to begin with but there was no room mics there was it was literally just a overheads and close mics and they used the same mic on every instrument this uh there's a guy here in Florida that's making these things called shotgun mics and they're basically small diaphragm condensers in a shotgun shell which is you know whether it's good or bad oh I've seen those yeah. I've heard of that wait 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 do you mean like shotgun mic as in the shotgun mics that I no. associate with video no or you mean I mean it? the mics are inside of a shotgun shell like the shotgun that you shoot yes the shotgun shell is the housing for the microphone and that's his gimmick what? that's his thing yeah it's okay, uh, okay. yeah they look sick they, they look, look really sick cool. I'll tell you I'll tell you right now from experience they're there's the pickup pattern is super tight which is good. You know, super hypercardioid, I think, is the pattern on it, which is great, but they sound really, really bad. <laughs> there's like no <laughs> there's like no top end to any of the microphones whatsoever. Um, Maybe that's a good thing in I, I, today's yeah. day and age. <laughs> I guess so. I mean, but I had to work really hard to get the drums to sound, you know, good by themselves just in the close mic situation with that. And it was, you know, the majority of the mixing was the first track setting up the drum sounding to make it sound good. And what I did in that situation, I had no room mics to work with and everything was recorded live in the same room. So you had, you know, a little bit of guitar bleed coming into the overheads and a little bit of uh, bass coming into the kick drum and stuff like that. So what I did is I set up the drums once I got them there and I was gating a little bit to kind of get rid of the bleed, but I set up a post fader send on everything to a bus and then put in I have uh, I use the the TL space the IR convulsion uh, room plugin and I have that set up and there's a drum room on there that I really like so I set up a post fader send to that drum room and used a fake completely fake room on the whole thing and uh, you know you listen to it and it's like oh it sounds pretty good it's like it's in a room you know so it's a uh, there's there's tricks to get around. I mean, and here's the other thing. Room sounds aren't necessary in certain genres. Like sometimes rooms get in the way. And um yes. You know, that you don't always have to have drum rooms on the recording. Uh, I mean, listen to ZZ Top uh Lagrange and there's no drum rooms in that and it's super dry. I mean, it is like you can hear him breathing practically it's so close mic'd on everything but it sounds absolutely amazing and you don't miss it you don't miss the drum rooms at all you know so it depends on what genre you're going for and once again this comes down to embrace the strengths if you don't have a great sounding room to get room mics uh, maybe you should just approach it from the side of a of a more alternative type of approach you know like uh, more queens of the stone age or something like that where it's like super close mic sounding and I tell you right now, if you can get a, a, a mix to sound great with no reverbs and no rooms, you're doing something right because that is really, really hard to do. 
when everything's super dry and super close mic'd only, it's really hard to get that to sound big and punchy and competitive with today's market. And if you're able to do it, you're going to be that much more of a better engineer on the backside when you do have that stuff available. You know, it's interesting also in metal, some mixers use barely any room mics at all. Some some do. Like, you know, it's a very popular trick to use a snare room to make to make the snare a snare room sound to make the snare longer. But like in terms of actual room mics, there are some guys who they'll get them and we'll mute them. Yeah. So Yeah, I mean it all depends. I I with the metal genre in particular, I've noticed that a lot of a lot of the stuff is so fast that if you are in a, in a bigger space, kind of like your space in Florida or any place that you have the length to get away from the kit, you got to be careful because at a certain amount of feet, that length becomes a 30-second note in your production, not a room sound. And so you're you're faced with this situation where, yeah, I got this killer room sound until he does the blast beats and all of a sudden the kicks and the snares are playing on top of each other because that's the timing of the of the microphone away from the kit in the room. And you know, so is it good to have room mics at that point? I wouldn't say it would be, you know, it'd be distracting. It'd be just making a muddy mess of those super fast beats. Well, that's why we put up a wall of gobos behind. Whenever whenever we work with a super fast drummer in my room in Florida, we definitely build a fort, a gobo fort around the drums and behind because otherwise, yeah, it's just a washed out mess. Yeah. So uh, I, that's, that's another thing that I think people should realize is that sometimes having a big room is not to your advantage, especially if you're working with super fast music. However, tiny rooms uh, can also suck. <laughs> yeah, they're pretty difficult. I had a tiny room for like seven or eight years where it was like 10 by 11 and it uh it was fun how did you conquer it reverb and room samples cut in much bigger rooms than i had yeah that's that's a great thing you bring that up the room sample thing is is i mean yeah you don't necessarily have to trigger the close mic sound but if you trigger the room sound on a whole kit it'll bring your whole kit to life in a whole nother way like uh, that's a great alternative to sending to a, a, a reverb as yeah, well. then you just got to get it right on the overheads and make sure you don't screw them up. I mean, yeah. for example, Vinyl Theater AL was done that way in a little teeny room like that. And uh, if it wasn't for all of the great room sounds and stuff that I had for samples, the drums wouldn't sound that cool. But I actually recorded that in Recorder Man. So it was a very natural sound. And then I blended that in with the samples and added ambience accordingly and compression to make that room not sound like it was 10 by 11. Yeah. Now, uh, this might sound like heresy, but and the your answer might be never ever. But uh, at what point would you say okay, maybe uh, MIDI drums are better? Uh, never. <laughs> <laughs> I just I, wanted to. I know. only do only say it because <laughs> I tried it. I was um I produced a project for uh and a female artist a while a long time ago and. And I really liked at the time the V drums. It wasn't when they just came out, but it was. I had just been like, okay, these things are pretty cool, but I hated the way the cymbal sounds. So I tracked V drums with real cymbals. I put up a set of overheads to capture mm -hmm. the cymbals and then played V drums. And it was a horrible idea. It was really, really <laughs> bad. I, the only time I think that the electronic drums are really acceptable is if you're doing pre production. If you, re I mean, 
because there's the players just don't play the same. Like I, I play on electronic kits a lot. One of the gigs I was playing at Disney was on a V drum kit. Oh, oh, wait, wait! I didn't even mean playing. <laughs> I meant programming. I meant programming from scratch. Here's the thing, though: is like a drummer doesn't play the same. So playing on a on an electronic kit, it, the drummer's not going to play the same way. He's not going to hit the same way. His timing's going to be uh, messed up because he's not getting the same sounds. He's not hearing what he wants to hear. So, I mean, if you, do, if you don't play drums and you need drums on a piece and you can do it on electronic drums, then yes, that'll save you time from doing it on the keyboard by all means. And it's not to say I just wouldn't do it. I have a friend that does this. He does... Uh, TV commercials and uh, you know stuff like that, drum sessions, and now he he got rid of his studio and he does it all on a set of V drums with with slate samples, and then sends the MIDI and the slate the printed slate samples to the the house, and they use that all over all over the place, you know. But that's also an industry, and what his gig is is so time. Uh, like it's such on a quick turnaround that you know he doesn't he doesn't have time to rent a room and go mic up the drums and all that. It's just much easier for him to sit down at electronic kit and play. But for me personally, I don't do it ever. <laughs> I, I figured that that would be your answer. And you know, even in uh, the metal genre, like I always see that as a last resort. I mean, though sometimes it does have to happen, or sometimes we do have to do that hybrid that you mentioned, where right. it'll be like sampled shells with real symbols or whatever. Right. Uh, I always view that as the last resort. But at the end of the day, I would rather have great sounding program drums than mediocre sounding performed drums. Yeah, I mean, it's it's all preference. I Yes. I don't really work in metal a whole lot except for the drum teching side of things as an engineer and as a producer. I'm more in uh, uh, an alternative, uh, straight ahead, I guess, ra- not radio rock, but hard rock and um, and even jazz and, and a lot of classic rock. I work with a lot of cl- classic rock artists. and um, You should mention who some of them are because it's crazy. Well, I have the Beach Boys coming in on Wednesday to do vocals on a couple different projects. and um, Yeah, that's just crazy, man. So, <laughs> there, you know, I, I work a lot with that type of artist, with the older guys that are, you know, that did it for real back in the day. And, um, I mean, there's, I, so I worked, I did the, the new Blues Image record with, with Mike Panera. And Mike Panera is one of the original members of Iron Butterfly and Agata DeVita, that song that everybody knows, as well as Blues Image. And we did a new record here that was all remakes of Blues Image and, uh, and, and uh, Iron Butterfly tunes. You know, the producer, the guy who owns the studio that I work out of, he was like, you know, sonically, you do what you want to do. So I approached it from the the idea of like, okay, we're doing obviously a classic rock record, uh, the late 60s, early 70s. What are the most iconic sounds from that period? And how do I capture them all on one record with the most fidelity? So my idea, you know, my choice was, you know, John Bonham has probably the most identifiable drum sound in, in history that's from that era. So I went with the drum sound of John Bonham and I have my vintage Ludwigs. I tuned them up and mic'd them the same way. And the, luckily we had a player that was a jazz player, the same kind of background, you know, and, and we got, I got those sounds that were very iconic for that era. So the way I I'm approaching things from an engineering standpoint is I would much rather have real anything, even if it sounds like crap, 
versus a fake something or other because I would I would embrace the crappiness you know so to speak I would you know how does this how does these things sound by themselves in a raw file and how can I kind of you know go back to the first thing I said with uh, you know with use what you use use your strengths and you know okay this drum sound isn't the best but man it sounds really cool if it's super trashy so I would go super trashy with it you know and as long as the genre permitted that thing that type of approach I would go that way I mean Ultimately, I'm not going to be trying to do something that I don't feel I belong in the that genre. You know, like I'm not gonna, I, I'm not gonna get into the death metal genre as a, as a producer ever because I'm. It's not my thing. I don't identify with that style of music personally. You know what's funny is uh, what, uh, and this has happened quite a few times is, and bands will go to someone who is an awesome metal bands will go to someone who's an awesome producer engineer mixer in their own right but who just don't do metal thinking that just because a guy is great that it'll go great and they come back with such a piece of shit yeah and uh then it always has to go to like one of us or one of our friends to completely redo like that that happens a lot it's it's a genre that you have to know and be into and i think staying out of it if you're not into it is probably Probably a smart idea. Yeah, I mean, the other thing is, is it <laughs> sounds like truth. after working with you guys, it sounds like there's a whole lot of work involved that I'm just, I just don't really want to do. You know, like there's <laughs> a lot of editing, there's a lot of tuning, there's a lot of things that I'm just not into. I'm used to, I'm at, I work on the other side of the spectrum where, as an engineer, it's it's important for me to have the sounds up as soon as possible and record everything because the first or second take from some of these older guys is the take like and sometimes I wanted to ask you about that actually what is it those guys so there's guys whose names we can't mention but let me right. just say that Eurofort was some of the greatest all-time legendary classic rock guys that everybody knows and everybody worships like how is that different than working with new guys uh well first thing is like i said you're always recording even when you're getting levels like as soon as they start playing the instrument you record because you know that magic thing that everybody talks about that happens in the studio like some of these guys everything they play is magic like literally everything that they touch as soon as they start making noise even if it's wrong it's amazing and so that that's the first side of things is like I don't have time to to really spend getting a sound I just have to get it up and get going and record as soon as it goes and it's the producer's job to kind of dial him in and say yeah we need to get that again because I want to change the sound he's the one that that speaks up and does that as an engineer I just have to make sure I'm capturing everything. The second thing that's different is you don't tell them what to do. <laughs> you don't have to. I mean, really, it comes down to is the fact is like, you know, when as a producer, I'm working a lot with, you know, I'm more, I'm really in an interesting point in my career because I've done so many things. But as an engineer and as a producer, I'm kind of on the way up working with a lot of really big names without having, you know, you guys have these gigantic uh lists of artists that you've worked with and and you know i have a, a list of artists but it's not massive i just happen to be good at what i do and at the right place you know that luck meets time type of thing you know i'm at the right place at the right time and i have the skills to be able to to move forward with it and not get fired and um 
you don't tell the older guys what to do. The new guys, you you know, it's like force feeding everything or or just kind of babysitting at sometimes to kind of get the performance that you want or that's something that's usable even with the older guys you don't have to do that at all. It's literally everything everything they do even if it's terribly wrong is still amazing, you know. And um so that's really cool. Uh the the amount of tracking time that you spend on things is is like so minimal in comparison to working with a younger band and a a, a younger project and you know it's 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 definitely capturing the moment versus trying to make something that is amazing at the you know forever it's it's a big difference of those two things you know the older artists are they're mature and they've they've grown into what they are by the help of somebody who was they were young telling them what to do all the time you know like somebody's already done that work for them for me really you know like I don't have to do that anymore I don't have to say anything except for yeah how do you feel about it do you want to do it again you know they know they know how they feel about it they know at the end of the take oh I messed up this one word let's punch it in so I mean you did mention the Beach Boys so we can just say that okay so they're coming in. What, are you going to try to tell those guys how to structure their harmonies or something? <laughs> not at all. <laughs> not in the least bit. That is not my... Uh, my job is going to be to set up four microphones and press record <laughs> and just let it happen. You know, like, that's the thing. Is like, like we were talking earlier, the sound, the artist, they have their own sound. And it's just about, I'm lucky to the point where all I have to do is capture the sound and I have to capture it as well as I can. And that's how I keep working is, you know, the artists are always very pleased with what they hear, which is great. So I'm doing something right, you know, but that's my job is to make sure they sound as good as possible. As far as performance goes, that's, they don't need help from me. They, they know what they're doing, you know? Sounds like a dream. Well, Matt, Thank you so much for being here. I've had a great time talking to you. Oh, thanks. Just that that stuff just kind of blows my mind. Very, very interesting. <laughs> and it's so cool to get that perspective. Yeah. I mean, and ultimately, I would say this is as a any advice to young artists out there, whether you're engineers or musicians or whatever, is you need to get have the drive to get to the point where you're considered one of those older artists. You know, like I think a lot of that is missing in today's music and in today's artists is like there's no idea that I have to be the best ever so that everybody else's job is easier. That doesn't exist anymore. There's always this, well, they'll fix it later type of approach. And I really don't think that that's going to do anything for your career, regardless of what career you choose like but especially music like approaching things from the idea that somebody can fix it later doesn't mean success and a long career it means that you might get a couple things that hit because you happen to be at the right place in the right time but it's really not you it's the other person doing the other work to fix you to make you sound better is the reason that they're success that you're successful so try to develop your own sound and try to make everybody who works around you feel like it's so easy to work with you. That's the ultimate point. And whether you're an engineer or a singer or a guitar player, that's how you want the other person to feel that's on the other side of the glass, whatever side of the glass they may be. Absolutely right. 
Well, thank you, sir. Well, thank you. All right, we'll talk again soon. Sounds sure. good. The Unstoppable Recording Machine Podcast is brought to you by Line 6. Line 6 is a musical instruments manufacturing company that specializes in guitar amp and effects modeling and makes guitars, amps, effects pedals, and multi-effects. We introduced the world's first digital modeling amp, and we're behind the groundbreaking pod multi-effect, which revolutionized the industry with an easy way to record guitar with great tone. Line 6 will always take dramatic leaps so you can reach new heights with your music. Go to www.line6.com to find out more about Line 6. To get in touch with the URM podcast, visit urm.com slash podcast and subscribe today.